What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, So Professor Yunus um, has been described in a piece in Prospect magazine as a modest man with much to be modest about. His story began by suggesting that each of us should start with solving one person's problems, then doing the same for five people. Professor Yunus went a few better than that. Uh, Since then, he's not just helped five people out of poverty, but millions of people out of poverty, with loans from the Grameen Bank. 90% of the poorest people in uh, Bangladesh now use Grameen services. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on microcredit, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the Congressional Gold Medal. He's one of only seven people to have done just that. They include Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, so pretty good bedfellows. <laughs> I think we're privileged to have you here today in the Mermaid Theatre. And with that, I'd like to invite Professor Yunus to begin your presentation. Thank you. And thank you very much uh, for giving me this opportunity to share my own experience and the work that I have been doing. And uh, <clears throat> I was reflecting on what is it that I have done. One thing stands out. I always did small things. I never tried to do any big thing. And and I I never planned it. Uh, When I did the first time lending money, it's not because I planned to lend money. Everything happened with me in most cases. It's out of desperation. And particularly the case of uh, lending money to poor people was an act of desperation, not a pre-planned, calculated step. Because Bangladesh at that time, this is the mid-70s, Bangladesh just became independent after a terrible war, after a lot of devastation. And in by 1974, we had a terrible famine in the country, people dying of hunger. Here I am, coming back from the United States where I was teaching economics, and now joined Bangladesh in a university to teach economics there. And here I'm very proud of what I teach. I feel good that I'm a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher. That was my plan, that this is what I would be. And that's what I became. 
then i see this famine in the country so suddenly you realize that all those brilliant theories that you discuss in the classroom has no meaning in the life of the people so you feel empty there is no match between what you teach what you see as a reality outside the door and gradually you feel totally useless person these things don't have any meaning to anybody so i was wondering what should i do whatever i have learned has no meaning to anybody so it came to my mind maybe i should just go out in the village next door because the university which i was teaching was in the middle of the villages it's not urban centered campus so i could just walk out of the campus be in the village i said why don't i just go into the village see if i can make myself useful to somebody at least as a person so that was my big ambition to make myself useful to another human being and i don't i didn't know how so i thought i'll figure it out seeing the problem if i can be useful to in some cases even for one day so that was the beginning of it then among many things i did i started discovering something in the village which took look terrible loan sharking in the village and how small amount of loans are given to a person and in exchange you grab that person totally ruin that person by taking away everything in the pretext that you have taken a loan from me and it's so ugly to see it at a close range you read about it but you read about it at a distance now you see it in a very close range face to face and i felt very helpless i don't know what i can do about it again it came to my mind suddenly i can do something for these few people i cannot solve the global problem of loan sharking but here i can do something why don't i lend the money myself and they don't have to go to the loan sharks anymore so they will be free from the loan sharks so i immediately acted on that i started lending money from my own pocket so that was on the spur of the moment decision not a planned decision i didn't know what will happen after that will they really be happy with this or it will not work out but i did this anyway it became very popular in the village everybody wanted to come and borrow from me <laughs> it's so easy to get it if you read about gamin bank you'll always remember that uh, first loan that i gave was 27 dollars given to 42 people the total is 27 dollars so you can imagine when we say small loan how small that can be and that's at the beginning that's the money i was giving that's the money they which ruins their life by the loan sharks uh so it become very popular you know very soon my money was draining out going out and within two to three months it's all done it's everything is gone <laughs> so but people are lining up for more money and the next village is coming up they want money too so then i thought maybe i should go to the bank they are the people who should be lending money my job is not lending money so if they want money they should bank should give it so i went to the bank and bank fell from the sky is lending money to poor people it doesn't happen it doesn't work as why not so it became a big controversy they will not open their door and i'll not stop annoying them by insisting on it but it didn't work so i started looking at the people at the top of the banking sector to persuade them to open the door so that they can lend money to the poor people i said this is a very small amount of money but nobody will listen to that 
Finally, after about eight months, I gave them a counter proposal. I said, why don't you accept me as a guarantor? And I become the guarantor. You give the money. And if they don't pay back, I pay back. It's my responsibility. It's not easy to convince a banker. So they want to investigate everything, how much money I have, or how much money I can really countersign for. And finally, after about three months, they agreed to do that, accept me as a guarantor. I was very happy that now finally I found a way to open the door, the money can come. And I started doing that more elaborately, more systematically. And it worked. And later on, we created a bank with this and called it Grameen Bank or a village bank, and repeating this whole thing. Two things keep asking me about uh, Grameen Bank. One is, uh, how did you do that? What is the best thing that happened to you? You could create a bank like this Grameen Bank. I said, well, I think the best thing that happened to me, I didn't know anything about banking. So I could do anything I want. Nobody is kind of looking at me, with staring at me. You can't do that. So I could do anything because I didn't know anything. And I came up with the idea and it worked. So it was a good, good thing that I didn't go to school to learn about banking. Because I can create something which is completely different. Because it doesn't rely on collateral. Because if you are a banker, you'll be taught how collateral is so important to lend money and so on. So I did something which worked for people without any collateral, without any guarantee, without anybody's introduction, anything. Just a relationship you build up between the borrower and the lender. Basically, it's a trust-based relationship and you start lending money. Initially, it was not big money, but as you as the number keeps growing, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger money. Today, we have eight and a half million borrowers in Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. We lend out over one and a half billion dollars each year. And each year, it becomes bigger and bigger. But no collateral, no legal papers, nothing. But it works out. One of the best things people talk about microcredit in Grameen Bank is the repayment record. It's one of the top. It's very near 100%. People do it, not just few people, millions of people do it every week. One of the first principles that we adopted in our banking, people should not come to the bank. Banks should go to people. At that time when you are beginning it, it was easy because we are there in the village, we see people together. But as it grew, it became difficult because people don't have to come to the bank, we have to go to the people. Today, eight and a half million people spread out all over Bangladesh, 80,000 villages of Bangladesh. We work in every single village of Bangladesh. So what does it mean? Mean that none of them have to come to our office. We have to go to meet them at their doorstep to deliver the service. That's what the Grameen Bank is all about. And it's not easy. Bangladesh is a monsoon country, pouring rain doesn't matter. You have to go there to do your business. They are waiting. And everything that we do in Grameen Bank is in a weekly cycle. Within one week, we must meet all our borrowers and do the business at their doorstep. So our staff, which is about 25,000 people right now in the Grameen Bank, they have to go and meet all these 8.5 million borrowers at their doorstep 
rain or shine or heat, doesn't matter, flood, doesn't matter. This is their job. This is what they do. And that's how the Grameen Bank has been built up. Initially, the money was difficult. We are borrowing money from the central bank. Now that we became a bank, it's easy to get the money from the central bank and give it the money, loan, and so on. And gradually, one of the first things that we did, we encouraged everybody to save every week. Every borrower must have a bank account, must have a savings account, and they do. They save tiny little money, few pennies every week, whatever they get, they do that. But if large number of people keep saving every week, soon it becomes big number, big money. Today, after nearly 40 years, total money that borrowers have accumulated is huge money. I'll come back to that. Grameen Bank doesn't take money from the international sources or from the government or from anybody else. It generates money within the bank and lends the money to the poor people. That's what the Grameen Bank is all about. Depositors deposit the money and you take the money and lend it to the poor people. Today, the whole thing has changed. Last year, it's changed. I said we give out $1.5 billion now. Guess how much money the borrowers have saved in the bank. It's nearly $2 billion. So when the staff of Grameen Bank in their discussion talk about the borrowers do this, borrowers are here, this is what they do. I said don't use it so lightly because they are not, no longer borrowers. They are lenders. They are lending to you because they have more money to you kept than you give them. So you are the net borrower from them. So the table has turned. That is the power of microcredit. This is the power of people getting together and changing their life. And that's what became known as microcredit because there's no word in the English language to describe what we do. So we had to coin a word for that, called it microcredit. Later on, we used other word, microfinance, and so on. But basically, this is what it does. While we are doing microcredit, there are many other programs many other problems that we see among the poor people. And every time I see a problem, I try to address that somehow because it's just in front of you. You cannot walk away from that problem. One first problem that we see, the children of the family of the borrowers, the, these are all women. We focused on women. That's a long story. But we have 97% of our borrowers as women. So their children are very important to them. And I see them. One common problem that I see they cannot see at night. After the sun goes down, they go blind. And I have no idea that such a thing existed as a disease. So I went to doctors, specialists to understand what is this happening in these families. Everywhere, not just one or two families. It's a very common thing. They told, well, it is called night blindness, exactly the way it is. At night, you don't see. You're blind. If the children go blind. I asked, can this be cured? He said, yeah, it's a very simple thing. You can cure them. Uh, but they are not cured because nobody pays any attention. What is the cure? It's a vitamin A deficiency. If the children get some vitamin A, they, their eyesight will be as good as anybody else. Where do you get vitamin A? Oh, give them some tablets. That will cure them. Or encourage them to eat vegetables. Vegetables have lots of vitamin A. And you identify which has lots of vitamin A and give them to eat. So I chose the vitamin A, not uh, tablet, but the vegetable option. So I encouraged them to grow vegetable, feed the vegetable. But every time I see, they are not paying any attention to what I said. 
And I asked, what is the problem? The problem, we don't have the seed, we don't know how to do it. So I started with an idea, why don't I bring the seed to them? So I did it in a business way. I started a seed business alongside, selling seed in a one penny packet, literally one penny. Each quantity of seed, one penny, is a small packet, and I gave it to them. And one penny, people can afford, they started buying it, throwing it around, and it grows. It's beautiful vegetables. They started enjoying it. As Grameen Bank grew, our seed business grew. At one point, we became the largest seed seller in the country. Can you imagine? And in the process, night blindness disappeared in the country. So again, I tried to address it, not in a kind of bringing medical clinics or something. I thought it's such a simple idea. If it works, that's what the doctors are telling me. Why don't you do that? And I did that. So each one is like that. Every time I see a problem, I create a business to solve it. Sanitation was a big problem. People will go out anywhere. So it created a lot of problems, health problems, health hazards everywhere. So I made a rule in Grameen Bank. If you want to join Grameen Bank, first qualification requirement is you have to dig a hole and use it. In the beginning, everybody protested. Why you insist on that? I said, because this is spread diseases. So why should you be punished? I said, it's no punishment. You're protecting yourself. Just dig a hole. It doesn't cost you anything. Don't tell me that you're too poor to dig a hole. And we are so serious, nobody can get to Grameen Bank until they dig a hole. So it became a customary. If somebody says, oh, I want to join Grameen Bank, how do I do it? And people will say, hey, first you dig a hole. (laughs) So everybody knew that. So in the process, everybody started their own sanitation arrangement. And then we gave sanitary loan to start a set up a sanitary latrine. We created a separate business to produce sanitary latrine and sell sanitary latrine to every single Grameen Bank family because the bank gives the loan. So today, many years before that, every single Grameen Bank family has sanitary latrine. And because sanitary latrine is a common thing among the poor people, it puts so much pressure on the middle class and the rich families in the villages, their women keep complaining. Even the beggar woman has a latrine in their home. How come we don't have it? Because they don't have it. As simple as that. That's a traditional way. So out of the pressure generated by women, now men started responding to it to create the sanitary latrine which we produce right there to install sanitary latrine. So in sanitation, Bangladesh is far ahead of all the countries around the neighborhood. So we did that as a business proposition. So we created a healthcare system. We created, we brought a health insurance program. Uh, each borrower can give uh, about $4 worth of money a year. And the entire family is covered under insurance just for $4 per year. And it worked out as a business proposition. We didn't want to lose money out of it. And we created all the health facilities in the village with doctors, with clinics, with the lab and everything with $4 per person, per family, per year. This is it. So that, again, we tried to address it in a healthcare way, uh, in a business way. And then we created hospitals, eye care hospitals, uh, social business way, in a business way so that it can cover. All these businesses that I created along the way has one element in it. It doesn't, it's not created to make money for anybody. It is created to solve problems. 
and I started calling them social business, business to solve problem. Non-dividend company to solve human problems. That's the whole idea of social business. And I started creating more and more of those social businesses. And it became interesting for other people, other countries. They became interested in it. And it became interesting for big companies. First big company that came to us to understand social business and want to do social business was Danone. It's a French company, yogurt company, milk product company. I have no idea about them, but their chairman became very interested, Frank Ribot. He had a long session with me to understand social business. He said, I want to do social business. Tell me what I should do. In, in a conversation with their staff, they came to Bangladesh. I tried to understand what kind of social business they do. Finally, we decided on producing a special kind of yogurt with all the micronutrients which are missing in the malnourished children of Bangladesh. Bangladesh, Bangladesh the children of Bangladesh uh, are basically malnourished. Almost 48% of the Bangladeshi children are malnourished. Some of them severely malnourished. So we wanted to address that. There are many attempts, many programs, but still they are malnourished. It didn't reach them. So we, we thought we'll address it in a business way. And Danone came and joined with us. We created that. We made it a very simple yogurt with the micronutrients in it. And then sell it, very, make it very cheap and make it very delicious. Children love it. So they started enjoying it. And now those, this is becoming popular yogurt for children. And gradually their health situation completely changes because they get the micronutrients which are missing in the, in the program. Uh, how did Danone get to it? How did Danone find the money to do that? That's a very interesting story, I'll tell you, because uh, it kind of clarifies many of the ideas about social business. The whole project was, uh, the project cost was $1 million. And half of it will be given from the, our side, from the Grameen side, and half a million will be given by, invested by uh, Danone side. We gave our money quickly, promptly, but Danone money doesn't come. We wait for weeks, we wait for months, they don't send the money. So we send them emails, send, remind them, they say, wait, we're getting back to it, but they don't get back to it. Finally, I talked to them. What is the problem? They said, well, we are facing some problem releasing this half a million dollars that we need to do because our lawyers are objecting to it. What is the objection of the lawyer? The objection of the lawyer is shareholders of Danone gave the management all this money to make more money. Now, management wants to invest this money, shareholders' money, into a company in Bangladesh which says upfront they will never give any dividend. So this will be violation of the mandate that the shareholders gave to the management. So you cannot do that. So we got stuck. I said, does it mean that we abandon this project? No, no, no. We are very much with it. We'll have to find a way to find this money. So they found a way. Two or three months later, they had the annual general meeting. Before the annual general meeting took place, they circulated a letter to all the shareholders, which is about 300,000 plus shareholders. With a common message, message is Danone has done very well this year. We are successful this way, successful that way. And we are giving you a dividend X amount of money. Then at the end is one paragraph. They say, we want to invest half a million, uh, million dollars in Bangladesh for this particular project. Uh, if you are interested to invest in this, sign up. At the bottom of the box, click, put the tick mark in your 
box and say what percentage of your dividend you would like to invest in this. And then we'll deduct it from your dividend and put it there. 98% of the shareholders signed up. They have been repeatedly warned, remember this money will never give you any dividend. This money will be used to do this, this, this. That's it. That's the purpose. So 98% is exciting news that they, they wanted to invest in this. So what the lawyers were protesting now has been done by going directly to the shareholders to get their opinion and get their money, own money into that. In the process, they got $35 million. They were looking for half a million dollars. And they created a new problem. And they were really upset about the problem. A problem was their employees got very upset. They kept complaining, writing letters, calling up the management. Do you consider us as a second-class citizen? You asked the shareholders to participate in this project. But you never asked us. You think we are too poor or too to be indifferent, to be interested in that. So the management was kind of encouraged to write another letter to all the employees telling the same thing, how much you want to invest. In the process, they got $30 million. So they got $65 million in total for half a million they needed. And they created a whole fund out of it, a social business fund. Today, they have 14 different social business projects in eight different countries with that money. And many more money is coming. Today, the balance of money they have in that fund is $91 million in the fund waiting for investment in social business. So that to say that people are not interested in social business, this is a, just a concrete demonstration how people want to do things which they like to do. So we created a lot of these programs and now it's spreading in other countries. Uh, we have created a company called uh, uh, Unis Social Business. It's based at headquarters in uh, Frankfurt. So through that company, we do it in uh, several countries, in Brazil, in Colombia. In one you saw is in Colombia. This is, again, another joint venture that you saw with McCain to bringing potato cultivation in, uh, in uh, Colombia. Uh, again, there's a story behind it. Uh, Colombia lost all its coffee market. You don't see any Colombian coffee anymore. Colombian coffee was the king of coffee, but not anymore. It's disappeared from that. Because Asian coffee growers have taken out the market, the best quality and get best price possible. So Colombian coffee growers have no business, nothing to do. So all the investors who came for the coffee growing in Colombia, they left Colombia with their money. The people who grew coffee have no, nothing to do, no income, nothing. So they are appealing to us, can you help us to involve these poor people in some work? Then this thing worked. McCain became interested in the idea of social business. They started discussing with us. And then we gave the idea, why don't we do a joint venture in uh, Colombia? To do what? To grow potato. So the coffee growers are now growing potato. That's what you saw. Uh, and they used to be workers, farm workers. Now we are turning the farm workers into farmers because they started having their own land. We purchased the land, we leased them land to them and growing potato and sharing this potato with the company and getting the best price. Last year was the best. First season, the first season they have grown 52 tons per hectare, per hectare which is a national average for potato in Colombia is 22 tons per hectare. So it's more than double that they have grown. 
the yield that they produce. So this is now expanding. So these are the social businesses. And then we got another problem I briefly mentioned and I'll conclude. The problem of the young people in the Grameen Bank borrowers' families. Because we wanted to make sure the borrowers' children had a good ed- education. Uh, because their parents are all illiterate. So we make sure that all the children go to school, we give them education loan, and so on and so forth. But what happened ultimately, they finished their education, but there's no job. So they kept complaining, what, what is the use of going to school? There's nothing for us. We'll never get any job. Then I started telling them, who told you that you have to have a job in the first place? Is it something written in your book that you have to have a job? Is it something your teacher told you you have a job? I said, always remember that this job, getting job is old-fashioned idea. Forget about that. You are a young generation of new, new world. So you should be thinking in a different way. And you tell it to yourself all the time. Repeat to yourself, I'm not a job seeker. I'm a job creator. I'm a job giver. And behave like a job creator. Act like a job creator. Don't feel like a job seeker. It's a completely different psychology altogether. So be a job creator. They didn't understand how do you do that. So what we did, we created a social business fund and now encourage all the young people to come up with business ideas. Once you have a business idea that can fly, we invest. We give all the money you need and we become your partner, help you to become successful entrepreneur and we continue. We tell them, look, your mother became an entrepreneur but she was an illiterate person. If your illiterate person can become an entrepreneur, take care of the family, take care of you, what good is your education? If you're just saying that I have no job. Your mother didn't wait for a job. She went ahead and did it. Why didn't you go ahead and do it? So now they are doing that. We are, we are putting the money. We, become the, we give the, all the investment they need and turn it. So I said, unemployment is totally an artificial creation of human mind. It doesn't belong to human being. Human beings are born as an entrepreneur. Human beings all throughout history are go-getters. But you put go-getters into become workers to take orders for somebody else and live your life in a very limited way. I said that's the wrong direction our economic thinking has put us into. And we have to get away from that. And that's the direction that we are trying to create. Now we see youth unemployment in Europe. I try to remind them that you are going in the wrong direction, trying to create jobs for them. You'll never have enough jobs for everybody. But that's because to begin with, it's the wrong direction. We will be teaching, encouraging young people in school at every stage how to be themselves, how to be creative, how to be entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, and that is the direction we'll go. Job will be a second or a third choice, or, and it will do it. Uh, it should not be any human being's first choice. First choice should be use your creative power, entrepreneurial power, and to make it happen. So along that, we can redesign the whole system. And if you redesign the whole system, there is no reason anybody who should be a poor person in the world. And if you redesign the system, there's no reason why anybody should be unemployed. And you can go down the line and you create a completely new way of doing and new of living. And thank you very much. Well, I think, I think as you can tell, um, 
Uh, Professor Yunus is a man not with micro-ambitions, but macro-ambitions. Um, I wanted to start with the idea of entrepreneurship. And we spoke yesterday, and you said to me something which I, I scribbled down. You said, even if I have to starve, I will not work for anyone. Yeah. I think that's a pretty striking statement um, yeah. of your mentality. And that interesting how many people are clapping about <laughs> that. So I wonder if you can just start from that in terms of as a sort of... Yeah. I was telling people that if I open a school, if I open a university, I'll make it a condition that if you enter this university, one of the commitments that you'll never ask for a job. You'll create jobs. And only then you'll be admitted to this university and we'll help you to be yourself, be a creator, be, and be an entrepreneur, what your natural self is all about. And I said, uh, some of them will say uh, that not only I will not ask for a job, uh, I would rather starve than ask for a job. And that's my commitment. That's the kind of thing people should do. Because we, are, we have our twisted our mindset in such a wrong way that now we are waiting for job to come or we are running around to find a job because uh, the society points finger at you if you don't have a job, as if it's your failure. I'm saying it's not your failure. It's the failure of the system, the way we thought. Because to begin it was wrong thinking to make you a worker, to work for somebody. Whereas you should be doing it in your own way. You should be using your own creative power. Uh, so now, instead of punishing, punishing the system, people are punishing you. The system is punishing you. I said, this is the wrong way. We should be punishing the system and get rid of the system which created misery for not only a few thousand or a few million people. See, when I talk about unemployment, I'm not looking at the unemployed young people in, in Europe. If you look at it globally, it's not only millions, it runs into billions. And that's the kind of society we have created just for the flaws that we have made inside of the thinking, what we call economics. But don't you think it's romanticizing what people can actually do to tell them that everyone can get a job and everyone can be an entrepreneur? A lot of us may be useless entrepreneurs. I mean, I know I'd be a useless entrepreneur. But... Uh, that's what you think because that's what you're taught. Yeah. But really you are an entrepreneur. Uh, I am encouraged. I'm not giving it as a kind of a fairy tale stories. When I ask your poor women, take money from Grameen Bank. I, I'm here to give you, give this money. What is the message I give her? That you take this money, you start your business. And that's what she does. She's not take this money and find somebody else to get a job. That's not the route that microfinance gives her. So it's not one young, uh, not one woman, not two, not hundred, not thousands. It's millions. Today, right in, within Grameen Bank, there's eight and a half million women which are entrepreneurs. Maybe tiny entrepreneurs. Maybe they started their life with $30, $40, $50 as an entrepreneurial activity. Now, today, probably after 40 years, she may have $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. That's the size of her business, but nonetheless, she's an entrepreneur. And it's not limited to Grameen Bank. All over Bangladesh, there will be more than 60 million women who has microcredit in their hand and entrepreneurs. So if they say, oh, I'm not an entrepreneur, you give me a job, I'll be made, I'll clean your floor. That's how I ignore. The whole microcredit collapse. It doesn't have any meaning. So, and globally, probably there are 160 million women with microcredit. They are all entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Now we are telling the young person that he can't be as good as his mother. I can't believe that. Or anybody else cannot be as entrepreneurial as they have done. I can't believe that. So I have concrete proof. I, I'm in, interested in some of the proof. Obviously, there are a lot of people who have been looking at the whole microcredit phenomena 
banks have been getting into it. People like Wonga have got into microcredit or at least different kinds of credit. And obviously that's led to some doubts about some of the incentives of why people are going into it. And I'd be interested in your analysis about uh, some of the critics of microfinance and people like Esther Duflo, who uh, says it's not always the miracle some people claim. Well, it, it's a question of what you define as a miracle. Somebody is a normal, somebody is a miracle. Uh, one See, I have to confront these arguments again and again. Uh, people say, well, you give tiny little money, all those development experts, and you give tiny little money to a woman. That's not development. I said, would you please explain to me what is development? I said, to me, if a family which lives in one meal a day, if they somehow manage the second meal, second meal a day, that's a development miracle. They move from one meal family to two meal family. I have met many families in Grameen Bank, or the joining Grameen Bank, could have only one piece of clothing they could wear. If they wash that cloth, they cannot get out of home, out of their house, because they don't have a second piece of clothing. It's a shame for, for her to come out with such a situation. So I said, if a one-piece clothing family goes into two-piece family, clothing family, that's a development miracle for me. If you replace your leaky roof in the monsoon country to a solid roof, that's a development miracle for me. Someone who'd never had a toilet in her life, in their family life, ever in any generation, have first time having a toilet, that is the development miracle for me. So it's a question of what you say miracle. And I gave you the example. These are concrete examples. When I say they have $2 billion in their savings account, this is not a talk. Just to These are facts, the banking information. So someone who never could save only a few pennies a week now has a huge banking bank account. That's a development miracle for her. In the process, not only she has the saving, not only she has the loan, in the process she is a businesswoman. So her status in the family changed completely. So this is not a fairy tale. And the Grameen Bank is owned by the borrowers, not by rich people or somebody else. They run the bank. They sit in the board. They make decisions. And that's a Grameen Bank, that's microcredit. And what do you feel about the fact that lots of commercial enterprises have been getting into the same space and trying to make money from the poor? Yeah. Uh, I always try to bring out the fact that we started microcredit with no, with no intention of personally making money for ourselves. That's the story I was telling, narrating how I give the money from my pocket and so on. Not with the intention of I'll make a lot of money by doing that. Loan sharks are already doing that, making a lot of money out of that. We are trying to fight the loan sharks so that loan sharks can get eliminated. And we, have bring, we bring microcredit in a way, in a sustainable way. And then when we created Grameen Bank, we didn't want to own this bank. If I wanted, I could own the bank, but that's not how I created it. I made them the owners of the bank, the borrowers. So they own the bank. So we, if we had intention of making money, we would have done it completely different way. So I said, we, we always thought today, after all these uh, experience that we have gone through, we would call it a social business. That's how we've intended. That's a, to solve a problem that we created for them. Uh, so those who are trying to make money out of microcredit, uh, those who are using microcredit to make money for themselves, I think they're in the wrong direction completely. So we are on the wrong side. That's not microcredit. The word, I have even appealed to them many times, please don't use the word microcredit. Use some other word. 
so they don't confuse the people. What is social business and what is money-making business? I said, if you use the word microcredit, then all the payday lenders, they say, we are microcredit too. They charge 1,000% interest, 2,000% interest. It's a flourishing business in the United States. I don't know how flourishing business it is in here. But in the United States situation, it's a flourishing business. The payday lenders and with 5,000, 4,000% interest rate. So if you call them microcredit, then what can we do? It's a wrong, it's a total abuse of the word. So they should clear off your patch. That's right. Which we tell yeah. them that there's a okay. right microcredit and there's a wrong microcredit. So probably they, those who want to make money, maximize profit for them, they will be the wrong microcredit. I want to talk a bit about inspiration for you. I mean, obviously, a lot of people see you as an inspirational figure. Who have you seen as an inspirational figure? Well, I'm sure many people. Uh, probably in the early stage, uh, when I was growing up, I would say my mother was my inspiration because she, she didn't go to school to study very much. She was a fourth grade, fifth grade probably. That's all about education she had. But a very unique character, very open, very uh, helping person. So she, she always inspired me on that, whatever she did. The other one, inspiration I get from the people that I work with, all these women that work in the village, they, how hard their life is and how they work so hard to make a little difference in their life, to make sure their children don't have to go through the misery that she has gone through. That's the only thing she does. And she's so committed, given this tiny money she gets in her hand, she tries to get the best mileage out of this money. When she received this first money, when you give her loan from Grameen Bank, as I said, the initial loan would be about $30 or $35. When she holds this money, she literally shakes. She cannot stand still. Because she cannot believe anybody could trust her with such an enormous amount of money. She thinks this is such a huge money. She doesn't know what, how to handle that money. So that's where the shaking part comes. And she, inside of her, she keeps promising. Anybody who has trusted her all this money didn't ask for anything. Just gave her the money on the basis of the trust. She will give her life to make sure that trust is kept. And her eyes, the eyes will be tears will be running down from her eyes not believing that it's real. It's, it's not a dream. It's a real thing. And the rest of her life she struggles to make sure she makes that thing true that yes, she, her trust will never be broken. And that's what keeps the whole Grameen Bank microcredit together. The relationship of trust between the two. But how do you feel in your unique position? You travel all around the world uh, meeting a lot of the sort of Davos elite bankers and uh, entrepreneurs and billionaires. How do you sort of manage that relationship between, you know, the woman who holds this money in her hand and respects the value of it and people who often, you know, who have far too much of it? Well, as, as you mentioned about the inspiration, I get so inspired, I want to share with everybody else because otherwise they will never know what and this is all about. And lose some of their money from one pot to some of these women, maybe. Uh, could be, but that's not the message that I give because I... St- keep repeating that Grameen Bank doesn't take any money from anybody. And I thought this is a, something to be emphasized. Poor people not waiting for money from somebody else. It's their money. And today, as I said, this whole table is turned. It's more of their money in the bank than the bank gives them the money. So it's not, money is not something that has to come from outside. So now, in, te- in terms of microcredit, we talk about giving money to help people, poor people. It comes, again, not because of the poor people. Is because something wrong in the system. 
because you're not allowing banking to be done with the poor people. Your bank, the bank, banking law doesn't allow that. Banking law is so rigid and so on. So if you create a new banking law to create bank for the poor, nobody has to give any money from outside. All you have to do is uh, maybe open an account in a uh, poor people's bank. You put your deposits as you do with any other, get the same service. So it's a more of a commercial relationship yes. rather than a charity relationship. But do you get frustrated by the levels of inequality that you obviously... Very much. It's a, again, it's a, it's a flaw in the system. As I keep repeating that, first of all, uh, the machine, what we call economic uh, machine, which works, is basically is a sucking machine. It keeps sucking from the bottom and transports in the top. So top becomes very juicy, very fat, very big. And the bottom becomes very dry. It's not the fault of the people who are running this machine. It's fault of design, the people who design the machine. These are good people, but they have no option. This is what you can do. But if you were running the world, what kind of machine would you I would turn then? it around, like I did the microcredit in the banking system. So the I mean, bank we did is a kind of reversal of the conventional banking system. So I'll reverse it. Like uh, uh, several things I mentioned about reversal, like what should the people do? I said, now the, the interpretation of the current capitalist system is that you have to be workers. Only few people will be entrepreneurs, lucky ones, and they will be hiring you. If they don't hire you, your life is gone, finished. So you are at the mercy of those people who will be hiring. I said, that's a wrong, wrong story completely. Everybody's an entrepreneur. But we have not built a system to support the entrepreneurs of everybody being entrepreneur. If you create the ecosystem so that everybody can really become an entrepreneur and create enterprise, so those distances between the income level will not be there. When you hear that 85 people in the whole world, just 85 people, have more wealth together than the bottom half of the entire population of the planet, what kind of message you are getting? What kind of machine that we have in our disposal? And it will get worse. It will not get better. So the, if, you, if you look at this, how, how little the people at the bottom get, you say, well, they don't work. They, don't. they work. They work harder than anybody else. Simply that work doesn't translate into return that they should be expecting. So that's the system fault. Does this make you angry? Uh, not angry in the sense I want to throw bottles at you or something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's what I was looking at. <laughs> Very handy. Uh, yes, I'm upset that uh, we are not paying attention to it, that uh, this is the reality of life, the reality is, uh, the, and this can be changed. And I give the example, uh, one that we have gone through, like in Bangladesh, for example, of the Millennium Development Goals. Number one goal is to reduce poverty by half. And Bangladesh has done that uh, before 2015. We are supposed to achieve this by the end of 2015. Bangladesh has achieved it by the middle of 2013, so two and a half years before the target date. So this they have accomplished that and reduced a large number of people, moved from the poverty to non-poverty and shifted that. And we, the, that population poverty, under poverty line has declined. We, so it can be done. Uh, it's not something, again, a fairy tale that all people should go out of poverty. And we are saying that by 2030, everybody in Bangladesh should be out of poverty. Not a single person should be a poor person. And what I say about Bangladesh is also true for the whole world. We can create a world where no single person will be a poor person. Because poverty doesn't belong to individual human beings. It's a, it's a system which imposes on you. 
is this externally imposed condition, what we call poverty. But do you think after the financial crisis, we've much, become much more aware of some of the problems in, inherent in the financial uh, structures? So in fact, even today, Janet Yellen, governor of the US Fed, denounced Wall Street banks and their culture, saying there may be pervasive shortcomings in the values of large financial firms that might undermine their safety and soundness. And she basically accused them of bankers of flouting the law brazenly. I think we all know some of those bankers' names. Um, but I'd be interested in your take on how far the differences between the sort of Grameen Bank culture, where you 98% you know, people pay back their, their loans, and the sort of structure of financial services in which we've seen evident in the financial crisis. In 2008, uh, we are invited by s some Americans to start a Grameen program in the USA because they said we tried many ways to introduce microcredit in the USA. It never worked. So I, they said we have tried it in 500 different organizations who tried to do microcredit in the USA and all of them failed. And I keep telling them you can do it 5,000 times, you fail, but still I'll say you didn't know how to do it. It's your failure, not the microcredit failure. So they get so uh, kind of upset about that they said, why didn't you come and do it for ourselves and, and show us how to do that? I said, I'll do that. So we started in January of 2008 in Jackson Heights in Queens, one branch of Grameen Bank. And we are doing it, and we're doing very well. We're very excited. It's exactly working like we did in Bangladesh. We brought people from Bangladesh to run this program. And then later half of 2008, all the crisis came, and banks were collapsing all around us in New York City. And I was there at that time. I said, I wish some journalists will come and interview me right now. And the question is, tell me who is creditworthy? Because this was an issue right from the beginning. Poor are not creditworthy. It's useless to give them money. So I said, now is a good time to ask because it's a, we are running microcredit program with 100% repayment right there. And on the other side of the road, huge big bank is collapsing. It's melting away because their creditors are not paying back the money. So now you define who's a creditworthy person. Is the poor person is the creditworthy person or the rich guy who took a lot of money and is not going to pay you back is the creditworthy person. So that's the question. And I said, I'm very happy that this crisis has taken place. We should be taking advantage of it. This is a crisis, but crisis opens up the door for opportunities. And this is an opportunity to redesign the entire banking system. So please don't go back to the old system of banking. This is a good occasion to redesign, re rebuild piece by piece another banking system, which will be inclusive banking system. Nobody will be excluded from the banking system. Even the homeless person can walk into a bank and deal with the banks. And that's the kind of banking system we want to create. But people were so hurry, in a so hurry. Every government was such a hurry to go back. They were not considering changing anything. They would rather give a big bailout packages. Please go in. We'll give you taxpayers' money to go in. And they paid a lot of money. You are too big to fail. So we go back to all those logic and so on. We go back to again, saying, that, well, we have not done anything. So we missed the opportunity. And I was, keep, I was telling, and I'll repeat it now, by going back to the same track, it's not an escape. You're not saying that, ah, oh, we have overcome. You have not overcome. You're simply waiting for a bigger crisis next year or year later on. The hole is there. You have not filled up the hole. You're simply going back to the same track in the same direction. You have to lay down a new track in the new direction. Then 
you'll be overcoming the crisis. So it's a, it's a waiting for the next crisis, that's all. It's a bit ominous. Um, I just want to come a bit more to your personal life. And, I mean, you live a fairly extraordinary life. And it would be just great to sort of share the kind of, I mean, you basically travel all the time. Uh, you're opening up social businesses all around the world. You meet lots of world leaders from the Prime Minister of Egypt recently yeah. and the Prime Minister of India. And I just want to get a sense of your life on an aeroplane <laughs> and uh, what that's like being you, basically. Well, uh, I got used to it. <laughs> I had to travel because uh, I felt excited when somebody's starting a social business and want to hear about it. We hold an uh, annual convention of micro- uh, sorry, social business people, bring all the practitioners, all the big companies who are interested and already involved in social business uh, together and discuss future plans, future programs. And many would like to examine the concept and they want to come and raise questions in the forum. We call it Social Business Summit. So uh, every year there's a Social Business Summit. So this is one I have to go. Uh, and then uh, last year we had it in Mexico City. This year we'll have it in Berlin in November, always in November. Okay, but on the journey there, do you yeah. watch romantic movies on the plane? <laughs> yes, I do. Great. <laughs> that's, that's the only so, occasion I watch movies. Otherwise, okay. I don't get the time. Yeah. So when you, there are times when you're not saving the world, Ben. So we can all feel a little bit relieved. <laughs> well, I try to learn what's going on in the movie sector. See? Obviously, obviously. But I was... see, if, you see, one issue that I always raise, and when I see movies, I, it keeps coming back to me. I said, sci- scientific world changed because of the science fiction. You bring imagination. Science fiction is nothing but imagination. You are imagining things about the world, about the planets, and the troubles, and so on and so forth. And you get absorbed in it. And you create devices which you never heard about. This transporter, you stand there, and suddenly you disappear. You end up in someplace else. And this is something they show you. And, and many of the things we are using today, 10 years back, this will be science fiction things. And now we are real things. So science or the technology followed science fiction. And that's why the science moves on, technology moves on. It always gives you... Imagination is what drives people. So imagination is very, very important. And science fiction brings that imagination and bolder and bolder imagination. And technology follows that path. I said, I wish somebody has been writing social fictions. Fictions about how human beings would be on this planet, this strange world, where they say, you know what? There's some news I saw in the... Internet, what did you see? There's one guy got unemployed. What is unemployed? Is he sick? No, he's not sick. But why is he unemployed? Cannot fun- he doesn't work? He doesn't function? No, he can function. Then why is he unemployed? People so will see, be puzzled. See, your next job is then as a Hollywood scriptwriter. Absolutely, Clearly. yes. This is, <laughs> yeah, another, that would I yeah, enjoy very much indeed. Yeah. Uh, another thing we were talking about a bit about is actually selfies. You know, the life of being a globetrotting uh, Nobel laureate and how many people want to have their picture taken with you, and how you deal with that sort of attention. Well, I enjoy it. People want to take pictures. Why not? <laughs> they do the selfies and all kinds of things. But you said something about how people queuing up when you actually go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, because they can't catch me elsewhere, so they, this, is a, this is a safe place to get me. <laughs> um, Susan, do we have time for one question, do you think? It's just 8.30. There's a little boy, which I'm being pointed at. Oh, let's go. Very good. If you could just tell us how old you are and your name. I'm Ben and I'm 11. Ah. 11? (laughs) (laughs) If everyone is an entrepreneur in a village, who works for the people who create the businesses who are meant to create jobs? (laughs) 
I, I missed it. What is okay. it? Do you want to repeat it? Okay. Okay. I think the question, I think the, the brilliant question was, the best question of the night is, if everyone is an entrepreneur in the village, who works for the entrepreneurs in the village? Is that correct? Yeah. Why do you need somebody to work for the entrepreneur? If it's just one person, how can you run a He will be partner. We'll work together. See? <laughs> if, if, you, if you need me, you have to offer me something. So you offer me partnership, then I work with you together. What do you think about that? It's a good solution. <laughs> I think you should be getting into a debate with an 11-year-old. That's I, think, right. <laughs> I, I think you need a right to reply. <laughs> well, if you're all partners, then technically you're creating a communist nation because everyone... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, 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 won't be, it won't be communist nation... Because we are doing it by our own consent. That's what we enjoy. I could work for you if you want. But I said, no, why can't we be partnered together? You look at the management part, I look at the production part. And that's it. So we share our profit and so on and so forth. Yes, but the human nature always makes you selfish. <laughs> and it will always take the bigger half for yourself. Yeah. Sorry, which that, means that you say, will always... Say that one more time, sorry. Uh, was, this is the last... last little last um, question the natural human oh, nature will want the bigger half for yourself and you're actually naturally meant to be selfish that was your that was how the human brain was wired but the thing is if you're a partnership you're going to just get into fights <laughs> first, first, first of all <laughs> i will let professor Eunice have the last word on this <laughs> no, so. no. thank you it's thank a good you. question very good question uh, first of all i don't agree that human beings by nature only selfish. That's what I was pointing out. By nature, we are selfish and selfless at the same time. So it's a mixture of selfishness and selflessness. It depends on how you grow up, which part will become stronger and which part will become weaker. The way you get through the education system, the way you grow up in your family, uh, what kind of aptitudes that you develop yourself. You can be 100% selfless person. You can be 100% selfish person. Depends on your environment, your thinking, your people that you work. But usually it will be a mixture between the two. One will be stronger, one will be weaker, or a 50-50. So if it's a 50-50 case, just to take an example, 50% of myself will be devoted in selfish activity, where I'll be the sole beneficiary of my actions in business life and so on. Another 50% is totally devoted to selfless activities, to solve problems, common problems, and so on, dedicated to things which is not bringing my selfish part into it. So I'll do both. And that's what I'm saying. Saying we can do both, and as a result, let's try both sides, not just do one. Today, the problem of the economic theory right now, they misinterpreted human beings. They interpreted human beings as a selfish being. As a result, we created a world almost like a robotic fashion. We just keep on chasing money, nothing else. So that is something not true to human beings. As a result, we have created a distorted human society because of the way we are made to believe. So if you can make to believe or you can examine that this, is, this looks more true to us than this one, then we can do that. It's all choice matter. It's not a, somebody is banging on my head that you have to do this. Not like that. It's a choice that I can do this and you can enjoy it. And that's why I was mentioning making money is happiness. Making other people is super happiness. 
if you feel that way, then of course you'll move into the super happiness direction. You can reverse it. Making other people happy is a, uh, is a happiness. Making money is a super happiness. Yeah, you can re- reverse it. It's a question of how you see it. That's up to you. That's why I said educational system helps us to discover ourselves, who we are, what we want to do. That's why it's very important that growing up is a very important period, like you are going through. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, before we came on the stage, uh, Professor Yunus said normally when he leaves the room, he likes to imagine that 10% of the people he's spoken to have been inspired by what he says. I have to say, I can well imagine that more than 10% of this room has been inspired by what Professor Yunus has spoken about today. And I'd like you to join me in thanking him for uh, his words and wisdom and for coming here tonight. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligentsquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.